And, you know, we weren't getting funded. You know, we were actually not even getting financed by banks. As you can imagine, going to a bank or in a recession and saying we're buying buildings. We're letting people live in these buildings for free. They're the type of people that nobody uh, that's a landlord in this industry would run to, you know. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, give us a loan. No, uh, they basically didn't see a revenue model. Therefore, we weren't qualifying for loans. So we had to do everything we did basically with our own capital. Welcome to Stay and Fight, a podcast about extraordinary Illinoisans who have made profound impacts in their communities and who, despite all the issues in the state, are dedicated to staying here and fighting for its future. I'm Matt Pavrocki, president of the Illinois Policy Institute. And on today's episode, we bring you Nellie Vasquez Rowland. Nellie and her husband Brian were just two Chicagoans who felt called to help the homeless. So they took a leap of faith. They bought buildings where Chicagoans could live for free while receiving support. Today, their nonprofit, A Safe Haven, has a headquarters that's 140,000 square feet with 406 beds to help those in need. They do everything you can imagine to empower the homeless, from addiction treatment to counseling to education, job training, and job placement. They also operate several businesses and offer affordable housing for folks who are back up on their feet. If it's empowering, they do it. And they've helped over 135,000 people. Let's get started. All right. Welcome, Nelly, to the Stay and Fight podcast. Uh, First, thank you for being here. Can you tell me about growing up? What was your childhood like? What What did your parents do? Wow. Well, thanks, Matt, for having me on the show today. Um, To tell you about me growing up, that's going pretty far back. (laughs) (laughs) I am grateful to be a first-generation American. My parents came from Mexico, made major sacrifices to come to a country where they didn't know the language, they didn't own any property, didn't know anyone, literally started from scratch. Um, my dad came over as what they call a bracero, which was a crop picker, right, a seasonal worker. He then uh, graduated to becoming a dishwasher, and then that was in California, moved to Chicago, worked at the steel factories on the south side, and eventually got into construction, ending up working with the developer that in exchange for him working, I think for a year of free uh, you know, labor, the developer gave him a home. So after five years of being separated from my mom and my three older siblings, she literally came to Chicago into her very own home, which I think is the ultimate sacrifice for someone to make when you know leaving your family and everything you know to go to a country and start out from the very bottom to the point where you're able to bring your family into a home that, you know, literally I was born in, you know, I was the first one born after me. My mother had, you know, three more siblings. It was a total of seven kids raised in this three-bedroom home. So, you know, thankfully, we learned from our parents that sacrifice and hard work, you know, does help you achieve the American dream. And things weren't always smooth, you know, working in the field of construction. You know, my dad may or not have gotten paid, you know, from a job as he started his own business. And there were many times where I remember him sitting at the kitchen table at five in the morning, just trying to figure out how he's going to pay those bills and support our family. But thankfully, you know, 
everybody pulled together and pulled through in my family. Every one of us was, you know, not required, but viewed it as our um, obligation, you know, to go out and get a job as soon as we could, 15, 16 years old, and start bringing money into the household. And, you know, half of our paycheck went to our parents to say, hey, you know, pay for whatever you need to do. I'm going to start saving this money up. It wasn't uh, like college, for example, was part of our our world. You know, my older siblings you know, went straight to work, and thankfully they were very successful, and even some of them starting their own business and in, even in the corporate world. And um, when it came to me, I had some people that believed in me and decided that I needed to go to college. And uh, they actually helped me uh, apply and they helped me get, you know, scholarships and loans. And, you know, I was the first one in my family to go to college. So that was a long time ago. And gratefully, I graduated with a degree in business. And then I was hired at Loyola, correct? At Loyola, right? And very unlikely path for me in terms of a career. But someone had asked me to interview for a job in the world of finance. And uh, I realized that I really didn't know anybody in the world of finance, didn't know much about it. All I knew is that it was something that, you know, was not normally or traditionally a path for someone like me, right? A woman, a woman of color with no golden Rolodex, having grown up in the little village community, right? Yeah. But um, this in person insisted that I would be very, very good at this type of career. That person eventually became my husband, Brian. <laughs> oh, that's awesome! <laughs> and you know, when someone believes in you, right, you gotta, you gotta like take notice. Yeah. And um, so I got the job, and um, and if it wasn't for his support, you know, and really cheering me on during very, very tough times of you know going into a career where I really didn't think I belonged, I ended up becoming you know quite successful. And after 13 years of being in the field is when my husband and I had decided to take a complete leap of faith, go in a completely different direction. We had started a safe haven as a side thing to kind of show our children the importance of giving back and making a difference and doing well by doing good, right, was really something that we wanted to not only talk about to our children, but actually live it. So can you dive into that a little bit? Because even that jump is a big one, right? Because I think about it, you know, with my little kids right now of thinking, how do you how do you demonstrate the behavior that you want them to have, right? And what you said is, it wasn't like you just said, what we're going to do is go volunteer a couple hours. Or what you didn't say was, here's a little bit of money. It's, I'm going to start a nonprofit to go help people. What, what led to that decision? Because that's a big decision to make. You know, I, I have to tell you, to be honest with you, I was just looking to write a check. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was just looking to volunteer. I was uh, doing research, you know, at the time, and I'm going to go back to the beginning, was 1994. And um, if you recall what was going on in 1994, Mandela was running for president in South Africa, and his platform was really apartheid. He was really bringing everyone's attention to the fact that there was a, a path for people that lived in poverty, right? And there was another path for people that had access to resources in terms of, you know, where their lives would end up. As we're doing research and we're looking at different charities at the time to give to, the more Mandela talked about the disparities and the differences in terms of those paths, the more we recognize them right here in America. 
And we realized that anybody that was suffering from substance abuse issues, unemployment issues, poverty-related issues, that there was really no path for them to get out of a system, right, that really would define the rest of their lives, right? So, for example, another thing that was happening that made things even worse was the fact that we were passing a law called the Crimes Bill in 1994, which was saying, in effect, that for people that were suffering from substance abuse issues, there was going to be a three strikes you're outlaw. So if you are obviously arrested and incarcerated for substance abuse issues, after the third time, you know, those minimum mandatory sentences were going to be very, very long. And in our family, we did have an experience with substance abuse. We did have an experience with alcoholism. Because of our access to resources, we were able to avoid the catastrophic consequences. We were able to go you know, into a hospital system. We were able to go into a treatment program that if you added it up in terms of the dollars, in terms of what it cost, we realized that this is basically out of reach you know, for people that were living in poverty if they were suffering from these underlying issues. And what we were doing as a society for an issue that we learned early on was actually a disease. And in the 50s, the issue of substance abuse was designed, was defined as a disease by the World Health Organization and the American Medical Association. So when these laws were passing and they were making a draconian against people that were suffering from these underlying diseases, we knew what that meant, right? A, these people don't have access to resources to go and get treatment unless they're a celebrity, you know, which is what you wrote about yeah. at the time. And they don't have the money to hire attorneys, right, to get out of these situations. So we knew that if you followed the money, that this was incentivizing, this law was incentivizing states to build more prisons. And in my mind, being a financial professional, I followed the money and I understood that we were investing in failure, right? So we weren't trying to invest and try to reverse engineer the problem right at the root level and heal it in a way that was going to be manageable because what one thing we learned about substance abuse and alcoholism is it isn't curable, but it is manageable, right? Which is what we've learned in our own lives. And then we also noticed that HMOs, companies like that, were going public. And the first thing they did is they canceled the 28-day stay, right, for people that were suffering from substance abuse and alcohol issues. So we knew now this was going to be a perfect storm for people that were suffering from these issues that not only were they not going to get help, they were going to end up in the criminal justice system and they were going to face barriers when they got out, which eventually they will, to jobs and permanent housing, right? So what would that do to lives? What would that do to families? And what would that do to communities? Well, I hate to say that we were right, but if you look around, at what is happening in America today, it is our worst nightmare in terms of not looking at these issues as something that can be preventable and solvable, but investing in infrastructures that made things worse. How did you see that? Because I think that's an amazing thing about what a safe haven has done is it's not, you're not just going into a drug rehab program. 
You know, you, you have, you have a bed to stay at, you're getting treatment, you have support systems, you have job training, you have jobs that you offer there. It's, I think too often we look at a problem and we say, uh, there's a crime happening. Well, we just need to, we need to take care of that crime. But what you did was you traced it back and said, how do we stop that at the, at the earliest possible stage of intervention? And let's do all of it. Can you tell me about how you decided? Was that something that you saw with your husband, Brian, when you were doing research? Is that something that you just kind of worked your way through after you had been running a safe haven for a while? I think it was a matter of our intention originally was since we realized we couldn't find an organization that was taking on the challenge of not only giving people a meal, like at a food pantry, right, or giving them a place to sleep at night, right, because that's all that was out there it was really homeless shelters that gave people a place to sleep from 7 o'clock at night to 7 in the morning and maybe a bowl of soup or maybe a sandwich, breakfast sandwich on the way out. We knew that nobody was really trying to take on the challenge of trying to identify the root causes as to why they were homeless because I talked here a lot about substance abuse and alcoholism, for example, as being the primary drivers as to why we took an interest because we had experienced it in our own families. But when we realized there was nowhere that people can go to where they can get a roof over their head, access to treatment, right, that something bigger had to be created. So my husband and I decided that instead of writing a check to someone, why not buy buildings, which is what we wanted to do anyway, right? There was a recession at the time, and one of the things that I was investing in when I was in the markets was in real estate investment trusts. I knew that it was a good time to buy real estate. You know, it was kind of starting to become on, back on the upswing. So we decided that we'll take our belief and that we need to help people and also our investment dollars and start buying some real estate in distressed communities where no one was looking to invest in at the time. And we certainly wouldn't face any NIMBY issues yeah, <laughs> because <that's... laughs> we're already there. So, you know, Rogers Park was an area, Logan Square was an area, you know, that we just started buying buildings, gutting the properties, renovating them. They were abandoned buildings. So, you know, the leadership in the communities, you know, weren't getting any better offers. So they're like letting us go ahead and make these investments. And we started inviting people to come and live in our buildings for free, as long as they followed the rules. And we hired some people to be their social workers, right, and to find out, like, how we can help them, what's going on. And not just individuals, but even their children if they needed to be with us, too. We wanted to help the entire family in a way that really aligned with our values, right? So we thought we would do this for about six months. <laughs> and, you know, we'd help a few people out, and we'd call it a day, and we'd turn around, and we'd tell our kids, see, that's how you do it, kids. Yeah. And then, you know, you go back to your day jobs. And, you know, we weren't getting funded. You know, we were actually not even getting financed by banks. As you can imagine, going to a bank or in a recession and saying, we're buying buildings. We're letting people live in these buildings for free. They're the type of people that nobody uh, that's a landlord in this industry would run to, you know. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, give us a loan. No, uh, they basically didn't see a revenue model. Therefore, we weren't qualifying for loans. So we had to do everything we did basically with our own capital. And, we, you know, once our own liquid capital ran out, we realized we needed to invite some investors to come in and invest alongside us in these properties. And that's how we kept growing 
and continuing to provide the services because as the word got out on the street, what we were doing, the more demand grew for our services. And the more we did it, the more we realized that one of the things that we forgot to do was to come up with an exit strategy because <laughs> how do you stop? <laughs> how do you stop helping people when you know you're doing so much good? So we realized that, you know, we were at a crossroads. We were either going to continue to do this. We had to find a revenue stream if we were going to make that decision or we were going to have to just, you know, call it a day and hopefully, you know, somebody else will pick up where we left off, right? So we felt that in order to get financing, the best thing to do was to go out and get a study. So we found a study that was done back in 1994 by the University of Chicago. It was called the Cal Data Study. You can look it up. It was very, very famous at the time. And what struck us was that it said, for every dollar that you invest in helping people from treat, you know, substance abuse issues with treatment, that the states save seven dollars. And this was a study that was commissioned by the state of California, and they hired the University of Chicago to come and do the study. And it was mind-blowing to me, because remember, I think in terms of being an investor, and I thought, oh my God, a 700% return. Who wouldn't want to invest in that? So I wanted to see how, fast forward in 1999, how we compared in terms of other programs out there, in terms of our ability to make a difference and make an impact in the lives of the people that we were serving. So uh, Northwestern took on the challenge of doing the study and eventually got published in the American Journal of Public Health. And they said that a safe havens model had an over 280% success rate over the national average. So for us, that was the empirical data that we finally needed to really approach funders. So who would be a funder for a program? We thought government, right? So we thought since most of the people that are coming to a safe haven seem to have at some point served time, right? And they were people that were coming out of the criminal justice system ending up on the curb, right? Living on the streets with nowhere to turn. Just imagine, they couldn't even get in a food pantry line. They couldn't get housing. They couldn't get a job because of the backgrounds that they had, right? And they certainly couldn't support their families if they had a family. So we needed, again, the resources to help these individuals. And we were helping them. And now that we had the empirical data, we wanted to fast track the ability for people leaving out of the criminal justice system and immediately getting them re-entered into our program so that they can have a soft landing, they can have a place to live, they can get the wraparound services that they need needed in the first place, and now open doors for them for jobs and permanent housing at the end of the day. And we were grateful that in 1999, we got our very first contract with the Department of Corrections called Residential Reentry Programs. We also were the first organization to help influence licensure for our industry because we knew that this needed to be licensed, needed to be uh, attract people that were certified and trained to work in the field. And at the time, there was nothing like that. So we became, you know, very uh, instrumental of making that happen in the state of Illinois. Since we got that initial funding, we also have added funding from the Department of Children and Family Services. So as women, you know, are impacted with DCFS cases with their children can come to a safe haven and get the services that they need as well as their children getting the services that they need. We also are funded by 
the VA, for example, as veterans are homeless and need a place to go. We work very closely with the VA. So today we're funded by state, federal, county, city, government agencies, as well as philanthropic dollars. But we're really proud of the fact that we have created businesses because, again, you know, for many, 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 many years, uh, there have been so many barriers for people for employment that we knew we had to create businesses that would hire them. So today we have a landscaping company that's pretty famous in Chicago. We do Michigan Avenue, so if you love those tulips in the spring, you can thank uh, a Safe Haven's homeless population for making that happen. They actually are paid to do that work. We win awards for having the best landscaping in the city. And we also have a catering business that's an outgrowth of our culinary arts training program, as well as a staffing business, which has been really, really busy with the pandemic. Today, thankfully, employers are much more open-minded to the type of people that they're willing to hire for their manufacturing jobs or construction jobs or hospitality jobs. And during the pandemic, we placed over 2,000 people into jobs. So for me, you know, I'm really proud of the fact that, you know, A Safe Haven really does live up to our vision and our mission of helping transform lives. And today we're at a moment of truth, and it's a pivotal moment. It's a game-changing moment where hopefully we can help influence a paradigm shift in the way our nation even looks at these issues, again, as a much more comprehensive, holistic approach and very individualized approach because the homeless are not a homogenous population. People are coming to us from all backgrounds, all ages, all religions, you know, and all political parties. <laughs> yeah. We never once asked, you know, what political party you belong yeah. to. It can happen to anyone. And I'm really grateful that, you know, A Safe Haven's work is getting recognized, you know, um, I mean, around the country, around the world, and even locally for the work that we do that's considered innovative, even though we've been doing this for 27 years. So I love the the aspect of the jobs, because that that goes to something bigger. Not only, I think, on the financial side, does it take, you know, an outpouring of taxpayer money for somebody who's homeless, right, to care for that individual, for a place for them to sleep, for food, for for all of the things that they need. But what you're doing is you're, you're turning them into assets, right? You're turning them into people who are, and not saying that they're liabilities, but you're now they're paying taxes. Now they're having jobs. They have work. But I think even more critically important is you're providing dignity. Uh, I remember I, there was a, a time in my life where uh, I was was begging for money I um, to ride the train. I had nothing. And I, I remember the feeling that you feel is it's a stripping of dignity, right? And so reading your book, I can empathize to a very small, small extent what these individuals go through right, of having that dignity stripped back. But through these programs, you're giving that dignity back to them, which I think is far more powerful than the financial from any of the other aspects. Can you talk a little bit about jobs and maybe a little bit, do you have a story in mind of an individual that you've seen that has come through a safe haven from, you know, having that dignity stripped away, but then helping them to find work and having that dignity restored? That's a great question. And thank you for sharing your story. Uh, Matt, it's, um, you know, 40% of the population is like one paycheck away from being homeless, they say, right? Um, There are so many stories, you know. um, We just wrote a book. You mentioned the book. It's called Healing. 
It's real stories of people that have overcome the homeless and the opiate epidemic. And it's a wonderful, wonderfully written book. It's a, Yeah, it's an anthology of 12 stories of people that, again, come from... I could not have handpicked people more different from each other, you know, to tell their stories. And, you know, I think you may recall... One story was from an immigrant, you know, whose family escaped a political, you know, uh, crisis in Chile, right, and came here as a child and became homeless for 25 years, addicted to heroin, and she was a mother of two children. You know, we had another woman that, you know, was a, a victim of her husband having left her with seven children, three of them special needs, you know, and with nowhere to turn. Another one, you know, a military veteran who came home and was addicted to heroin, and he suffered for over 20 years living on the streets came from all of them you know come from good families you know some of them some of them don't come from some you know such good families but the one I'll tell you about right now is a gentleman that was a marine who came home and uh, came from a good family and ended up living on the streets and addicted to heroin his story is one that you know clearly no one would have seen coming a million miles away right you know smart boy next door you know, again, had everything, you know, anyone could ever ask for a good home. You know, he had their problems, right? But, you know, nothing that should have led him to the type of life he ended up living. And that is, again, living on the streets, eating out of garbage cans, which he, you know, shares in the book. And his name is Robert Hovey, right? Um, Cook County Jail, as you know, is one of the largest jails in the country. Every day they're holding people in jail that are waiting sentencing. And he was lucky enough to have gotten referred to our program and was able to get the help that he need when he needed it. And I want to say it was maybe about 20 years ago uh, that he went through this and um, came to a safe haven, got everything he needed, keys to his own apartment, you know, got all the wraparound services. We got him a job in telemarketing and he took it from there. Uh, today, he is a serial entrepreneur. And Cook County Jail, when I wrote the book, I sent them a couple of copies because I said, you know what, a lot of people in this book mention having been in Cook County Jail. And you referred them to our programs. And I thought you'd like to share in the joy of seeing where these stories ended up because of our partnership, right, where they had people get referred to ASAP Haven. And at the end of the day, we got them jobs. But nobody ever gets to read the rest of the story in terms of where these people end up years later. And um, they bought 500 copies of our book. You know, oh, that's share awesome. With other, yeah, with other people sitting in prison in jail at that time. And during the pandemic, they invited me to do a book talk. And I invited Robert along with other people in the book to, you know, give this book talk. And he shared with everyone, you know, what it was like for him to have lost all dignity and to come to a safe haven, a place where, you know, you are surrounded by experts and professionals and people that really, really care about your well-being. They care about your mental health. They care about your education, your employment and your employability and, you know, your ability to get your life back on track. And he's just a great example of someone that, you know, hit rock bottom for over 20 years and just couldn't get himself out of it. And today is a serial entrepreneur that he shared in the in the room, you know, with all these people sitting in jail, you know, pretty down on their luck and probably in the worst feeling situation of their lives, you know, that he now owns a million dollar home fully paid for. Right. And he was in their position years ago. I mean, he was right there. He was right there, you know. So, and everyone on that stage that was with me that day has an equally inspiring story. And I recommend that people pick up that book because if they don't believe 
that people, you know, that are in the depths of despair, living on the streets, eating out of garbage can, have potential, they got to read this book. That's because right. reading it and hearing it told in their own words makes it so much more believable. What does somebody like me do, right, where you encounter people who are homeless? I encounter somebody who's homeless every day. Uh, recently, I've started in our car keeping like the bags of chips or the other, you know, snacks we have for our kids so that when you stop on the highways, you get on, um, you're not just shooing them off or saying, oh, I don't have anything. You have something you can give them in food. Uh, what, what do you do if you're somebody like me who, who encounters homeless people on a daily basis? How do you help them find help? I actually um, got this idea from people that would come to visit me at a safe haven and they would do the tours and they would be blown away, right? And they could not wait to tell people about our programs. In fact, when they'd walk down the street and they'd see a homeless person, they would tell them about a safe haven and say, you've got to get to this place. And by the way, here's the business card of someone you can call who can help you my business card with my cell number on it. <laughs> so I'm getting calls from people on my cell. Hi, you know, I just got your card and I understand you can help homeless people and I'm li living on the streets and I need help. And I was like, oh my God, you know, yeah, of course. And of course it introduced them to, you know, where they need to go, which number they actually do need to call. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, um, but it gave me the idea that, you know, people need something to hand to the homeless. So I actually created cards that, you know, gives the information about a safe haven and also has like icons, right? Food, housing, education, employment, right? All across the board so that people know that just by walking in the door at a safe haven, they can ask for help. And these are the types of services that they're going to get. So that's the first thing, as I tell people to do, is like, if you're going to give people a card, you're better off not giving my business yeah, card, but <laughs> here's a card that you can give. And when people donate to a safe haven, they usually, you know, stack them up with the, those types of cards so that now they can hand those cards to people along with, you know, a dollar, two dollars, ten dollars, whatever they want to give, you know, to help that individual, you know, make a cab ride or a bus ride, you know, to a safe haven. Hopefully that's what they'll use it for because yeah. there we're talking about actually getting them to a place that by design is going to get them, help them get their lives back on track. So this podcast is, is called Stay and Fight, and it's about people who have stayed in Illinois and are fighting for its future. Something you've done, Nellie, that I think is, is admirable is you're fighting not just for yourself and your family, but for the thousands of of homeless, of people who are asking for help every single day. Can you tell us about why you stay in Illinois and why you're fighting for its future? Well, um, this is the place where my father decided to settle with our family back, you know, in the um, early 60s. And our entire family is here. You know, our my brothers, my sisters, my cousins, like we're all here. We love Chicago. We love Illinois. We love the people from Chicago. We love the people from Illinois. We are the, I believe, the best city in the world to live in. You know, I think what's happened, you know, it's it's sad and I hate to see so many people that I do know leaving the city and leaving the state. And the more people, especially big philanthropists, leaving our city, leaving our state, it's gonna leave a, a big hole, you know, in our ability to, you know, pick ourselves up by the bootstraps and, you know, get back on track. But it's going to take all of us, you know, playing a role 
and getting involved and, you know, being a voice. And, you know, there's so many issues that people care about out there that are so important. But to me, the utmost important are the people that are literally living on the streets right before our eyes. I mean, how can you care about things that, you know, are happening maybe 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now without paying attention to what's happening in front of you right now? My final question for you is, what do you love most about Chicago and Illinois, and why do you have hope for its future? Oh, gosh, it's got to be, it's well, besides the beautiful, uh, the beautiful skyline, <laughs> which I love to go on my runs, you know, on, on Lakeshore Drive and, and along the, um, the beach in the mornings for inspiration, you know, it's the people, you know, we're just the salt of the earth, you know, we just have this Midwestern welcoming. I I have to say, you know, I believe that even if you weren't born in Chicago, but you lived here for a while, you become one of us, right? Like we adopt people like immediately. And people say that all the time. It's like they've been here their whole lives because we are just that welcoming and that friendly and, and we care, right? Chicago, we're the city of where they say big shoulders, right? So I think we have an opportunity to really show the world who we are. You know, right now we're getting a bad rap. You know, I know that I was even watching a news segment yesterday where someone was saying, you know, New York is being compared to Chicago and it's like becoming the murder capital of the world like Chicago. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm offended. (laughs) (laughs) We got to do something about that, you know, because that's not us, right? That's, that just represents a very, very small portion of the population and people that live here that may be suffering from these underlying conditions that we're talking about. And I want a shot at helping them and I want a shot at reverse engineering their lives and showing them a different way. And, you know, so I'm all in, you know, so hopefully more people will join us. I love it. Nellie, I, one, one of the aspects that I admire so much is that uh, where everybody's talking about crime right now and they're saying crime is rising, you know, here in the city, uh, you know, crime is a symptom of an underlying problem. And what you've done is very entrepreneurial. You know, you risked your life savings with you and your husband, Brian, to say, we are going to put our money in for this charity, for this nonprofit, where most people will mortgage it on an entrepreneurial idea of we're gonna make more money. But it shows about what an investment really is in a charity. And what you've done is is really created a cycle of investment to help the least among us and lift them out. Uh, You are truly doing the Lord's work. Thank you so much uh, for being here. Thank you for joining us. uh, And thank you for staying and fighting. Thank you, Matt. If you like this episode, share it with your friends and subscribe so you don't miss out on the next one. Thanks for joining us. And we'll see you next time on Stay and Fight.